Daniel chapter 5 is noteworthy because it plops us down right into the action without introduction or context. And so I shall do the same. Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay, we need a little context, a little introduction. I can't help myself. Uh, Who on earth is Belshazzar and what is this party all about? If you've been with us, I've been in a series called True Grit. It's a series all about being a stranger in exile in Babylon, a series through the book of Daniel. The idea is that Christians more and more are going to have to figure out how to learn as, how to learn how to live as an exile as culture grows more hostile to Christianity. Uh, so along the way, we've met Daniel, some of the exiles from Jerusalem. We've met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And mostly we've learned a lot about a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, who in the world is Belshazzar out of nowhere? And he's throwing this big party. We are now decades after the events of chapter 4. Decades after Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is now an old man. Remember, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Abednego came over when they were teenagers. Now he's an old man. And we actually know the year. Uh, Ancient historians recorded Daniel chapter 5. It was a massive cultural moment, geopolitical, military moment happening in Daniel 5. And so Herodias and some other ancient uh, historians recorded this. We know the year is 539 BC. In fact, this night was so monumental, we know the actual date, not just the year. Daniel 5 happened on October 12th, 539 BC. Which means in about a month, we will celebrate the 2,650th anniversary of Daniel 5. Mark your calendars, okay? October 12th. Who is Belshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He's long dead. They call Nebuchadnezzar in this over and over. You'll see they call your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father. They mean like your forefather, right? We use the same thing when we teach kids. Father Abraham. I won't do the whole, you know, but... It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean my dad's Abraham. It means my father, my forefather. And that's, that's true. Nebuchadnezzar is the forefather of Belshazzar, but he's gone. His son is gone. The kingdom belongs to Nabonidus. Who's ever heard of Nabonidus? You haven't heard of him because he abdicated the throne and he went crazy. He joined a religious cult and moved up to the Arabian desert. So he's out there somewhere. So, so, so Belshazzar is in way over his head. Belshazzar, Nabonidus' son, is the king, and he's in way over his head because dad is, you know, in some cult somewhere, but he's still out there. There we are. What's going on geopolitically? The week leading up to this feast, Belshazzar and the whole capital city of Babylon. Remember, Babylon has got this massive empire and this massive army out there fighting their battles. Uh, but uh, a week ago, uh, uh, October 5th, somewhere around 7 to 10 days ago, Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. Apparently there's a new sheriff in town. King Cyrus comes swooping down from the north and has defeated. They can't believe it. The whole capital city is in shock. Belshazzar's received this devastating news. The Babylonian army has been defeated by King Cyrus. Which means you are in your capital city defenseless. You have no army. That happened a week ago, and now the word on the streets going all around the capital city is that uh, uh, Cyrus is less than 50 miles away, and he's probably inching closer. 
We don't know. At any moment, it could happen. Is he going to swoop in and kill us all? Maybe. Is he going to burn our city to the ground? Maybe. Is, is he just going to kill the king and the nobles and let everybody? Maybe. Is he going to, is he going to kill nobody and just make us a vassal state and, and make us pay taxes for the rest of our life back to the Medo-Persian empire? We don't know. On the one hand, we're filled with fear. On the other hand, Babylon was, I mean, Babylon, if you're going to have siege warfare, you could do worse than being holed up in Babylon. Babylon was famous for its double-walled city, massive walls. Uh, one commentary I read said, on the top of these walls, don't think walls, think walls. On the top of the walls, you could run four chariots across. You could run four chariots wide on the top. Of the, they, they only run three wide at Talladega. You can go four wide on these walls. You understand? These are massive you got tons of provisions, and best of all, you have the one resource during siege warfare that is the most precious of all. you got water. Why? Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. Remember your ge- uh, geography class as a kid, the Tigris and Euphrates, cradle civilization? The mighty Euphrates River runs right through, and it provides two things, nourishment, water, but also defense. It forms a moat. You, you could not get under the city if you wanted to tunnel under without drowning. So it provides an added barrier of defense. So on the one hand, you're sort of secure in this city. On the other hand, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's really, that's really what's going on here. We don't know what's going to happen. Is everybody going to die? Are they going to march in here and, 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 and plunder and kill everybody? Are they going to burn our city to the ground on the brink of possible death, of being snuffed out of all the significance of Babylon gone in a single night? What should a pluralistic society that's scared to death of what might happen with a secular king do? Throw a party. Doesn't make any sense. And yet that's exactly what he does. And he does not just throw a party. He throws a party. He throws a frenetic, incredibly wild, bacchanalian romp. In these first four verses, they describe it. Look with me. He's drinking wine in front of a thousand of his lords. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar had fathered, taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought. What's that about? Uh, when, the, when the army would go and capture some uh, 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 foreign entities, you know, some nation would fall. Most of these uh, ancient Near East cultures, they all had a temple in the center of their town. It was Philistines. You'd have a temple of Dagon. Babylon had a temple to Marduk. Uh, I'm sure one of the Canaanites had a temple to Baal. And what they would do is they would go in and they would take the statue of that God, the idol of that God. They'd bring it back to their temple as if to say, like, right? I mean, they're flexing on them. Like, look, oh, your God is so big and bad. He couldn't defend you. He couldn't protect you. Your God is in our cage now. See? Well, when they went to, they said, "Go go get the idol to Yahweh. Go get the Yahweh statue and bring it. The soldiers came back and said, we got a problem. What? You go into the center of the temple of Jerusalem, which they did. They destroyed it. But they went into the Holy of Holies. What did they find? There's no idol. There's no statue. Why? Well, we know why. Because God gave these commands. And one of the biggies was, don't make any image of me. Don't have any idol. I said, well, what do you got? You got anything? They're like, well, I don't know. There's some really fancy silverware. Bring that. <laughs> so that's the best they can do for, to represent Yahweh is his stuff. His goblets of silver and gold and the vessels. Okay, fine. So bring that, bring it out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. See, if, if you're going to really flex on these pagan gods, that, that would do it, right? Take Yahweh's stuff and 
propose a toast to the pagan gods out of Yahweh's goblets. Ugh. So they brought, verse 3, they brought in the golden vessels been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. That's, there's repetition in these first four verses over and over. And they want us to see at least three things. They want, well, look at the fourth verse. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I think they want us to see three things and maybe a fourth. Three things and maybe a fourth. What is he thinking? What on earth is going on? You're feasting on the brink of death, dude. Like, the, the, Cyrus is less than 50 miles away. You don't know. At any moment. So, so people have all these theories. Was he being macho? Maybe. Was he being defiant? You know, as if to say, you know, bring it on. They could potentially go into siege warfare, which is starvation warfare, right? You starve them out. You surround the city, cut off the supplies, and starve them out. They're saying, we're so sure you will turn tail and go back to Persia before we starve that we're going to throw a feast to kick off starvation warfare. Maybe. Uh, who knows what he's thinking? It, maybe he was being political. If you... If a, if a new power's coming in, you're worried all your nobles are going to overthrow you, then you throw a big party and try to win their favor. Maybe. Maybe he's total denial. But here's why I make such a big deal about this. Three things and maybe a fourth. That the, the, the writer of Daniel 5 has taken pains for you to see. One is the romantic sensuality. This was not done. The, 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 the inviting the lords, okay, inviting the wives, okay, but the wives and the concubines. I mean, they're really trying to emphasize romantic sensuality. Two, the sort of pride of wealth and achievement is going on at this party. Look what, my, look what my forefather Nebuchadnezzar did. Look at the silver and gold. Look at all the wealth and the significance. Three, the, um, idol uh, the man-made religion, the idolatry. They're toasting these man-made gods. And if all that doesn't take your mind off of it. In other words, if the, if the romantic sensuality doesn't take your mind off the fact that we're all about to die... Then try the wealth and legacy. Look at the legacy we leave behind. Look at all this power. We'll be fine. We have all this power. And if that doesn't work, try man-made religion. This God will save me, and this God will save me, and I'm a good person. And if none of that works, mix another drink. All four verses. All four verses. And they drank, and they drank, and they drank, and they drank. Why? Abusing substances here is a way of what? Numbing the pain and escaping the reality of what's coming. See? So you see, that this is what's going on in, in Daniel 5. Now, why do I make such a big deal about that? I am convinced that what happened 2,650 years ago was in a microcosm, in, in that party, they were feasting on the brink of death. I'm convinced that's exactly what you have in 2021. That's what's happening right now. What do I mean? So, so uh, some of you know, I... Um, I read a lot of old Tim Keller sermons, and uh, Keller often will cite uh, a, uh, a, a thinker. Uh, he wrote a book in the 70s. He was not a believer. Uh, Keller was, sorry. But the, the guy he cites is Ernst Becker, Ernest Becker, and he won a Pulitzer Prize. He wrote a book in 1973 called The Denial of Death, and I'll warn you, if you start reading this book, you can't unread it. Um, what, he de what he says in that book, and, and, and this is why it was so profound, and I think this is why Keller refers to him all the time. I think he's right. Becker has this theory. Again, Becker was not a believer, but he explains what's happening in Daniel 5. He has this theory that no human, and again, with Becker not being a believer, there's no, there's no notion of God or anything like that. So he says, 
no human can honestly deal with the brutality of this fact. We're going to die. He says, that's such a pill, nobody can swallow it. Not honestly. You'll hear people say, yeah, you only live once, we're going to die, what else? No, 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 no. That's bravado. That's trying to be heroic. No, if you have, and in fact, I agree with him. That's why I tried to bring this out. If, you're, if, you, if anybody was here for my Ecclesiastes series, series, I tried to point that out, saying, have you stopped and thought about like all our significance, everything? If there's no God, it's lights out, we're over, it's the extinction of everything. And then if once the sun burns out, it's the extinction of all life on earth. Like that's it. And I kept driving that home to the point where I'm pretty convinced at the end of my first Ecclesiastes series, everyone was so depressed. And I was like, no one will come back next week. I was really, really, really nervous, right? But I think he's right. Who can honestly stand in the face of that fact? If our death literally means personal extinction, nothing survives, then Becker says, and I agree, in the book Denial of Death, nobody can live like that. Nobody can live honestly like that. Becker goes further. He says, so what you do is, you try to build up all these distractions and build up all this significance to try to talk yourself into the fact that you do have significance. Even though we're going to die and everything's going to be over, we need to somehow forget that. We need to forget how utterly insignificant we are. He says every human culture is nothing more than a big distraction to attempt to forget how insignificant we are in the face of death. That's all culture is. So every culture is just an attempt to show that, you see, we do have meaning. Uh, we are significant. Look at what we did. Look at the music we create. Look at the, look at the, the, the things, look at the legacies to our own greatness. He says all that is just whistling in the dark because the fundamental question is what happens to you when you die. And for Becker, because there's no God, he says, and because that is so looming and so scary, you have to invent some way to deal with it. Here's where I tie this all together. Listen carefully. Becker says, isn't this interesting? What was in Daniel 5? Three things, possibly four. Romance, wealth, man-made religion, and the, the abuse of mind-numbing substances. Okay? Here's what Becker says. Remember, the guy's not a Christian. In 1973, he writes, uh, well, so we try various solutions. One way to try to get over the fact that we know we're going to die and we try to convince ourselves we live forever, the first solution he calls the romantic solution. It's right there at the party. The romantic solution is what? Well, to distract myself from looming death, I find eternity in, in romance, in love, right? We deify romantic love. And if you don't believe that romantic love is deified, turn on the radio, listen to pop music, right? I, I see the stars in your eyes and the heavens and we've got eternity, and, right? I, uh, forget the fact we're going to die. We can't deal with that. But, but I feel eternity when I, you know, am, am with this person, I know there's death, but I'm going to distract. The romantic solution is, is distracting. No, my legacy is going to go on through children or, or whatever. Or even, even just romance. You know, I, 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 I don't want to think about all that death. I want to think about Hallmark movies. Okay. All right, a little too close to home. Sorry. All right. I mean to convict nobody. But you see, the romantic solution. That in the face of death, feasting on the brink of the grave, you see that. Becker says, don't buy it. Why? How can the answer to eternity be found in the arms of a lover? They're going to die too. So he says, I don't buy that. So he says, people say, well, okay, if that doesn't work, then what does work? Next, he calls it the creative solution. And by that, he means legacy, wealth, achievement. That's the goblets of silver and gold. That's there too. 
And in that solution, you say, well, I'm, this is, I may die and pass away, but the stadium named after me will go on. Right? I'm going to die and pass away, but there's a statue of me on the court square. I made a legacy. I donated this money and they named the wing of this children's hospital in my honor and after me. And I've amassed all this wealth and fortune. It's just a way of whistling in the dark, ignoring the fact you're going to die. But you see that at the party. And what was the third one? Becker says, those two eventually wear out. Most people don't fall for that. He says, but the third one's the most popular. He says, man-made religion, which Becker, who's not a believer, would say all religion's just man-made religion. He says, man-made religion. Because people can't face the fear of death, they invent a God to worship. That's what Becker would say. You have man-made religion right there in verse 4. And if none of that works, you can get so drunk out of your mind, or you can get drunk on substances or any number of things you know many people would say well i don't i would never get drunk on substance abuse but uh you could get drunk on this screen you could distract your whole life on a screen or on amazon.com you know retail therapy right as a means of escape shopping or whatever what are you doing you're trying to distance and deny reality and what does that reality stare in your face the death is coming for all of us I think you see that right here in Daniel 5. And something, something's got to give. Reality has to crash in. And in verse 5, there is the ultimate party crasher. (laughs) Reality strikes. Occasionally, in the midst of all this attempt to escape, and, and Becker would say, it's not like you pick one or the other. It's that sometimes you sort of pick and mix and match, and you do enough altogether that you're trying to deny this reality. But then something gets your attention. Something makes you face the awful, horrifying truth of the eternal. And that's what happens in verse 5. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you face that. Maybe it was in a movie, or maybe it was in a song, or maybe it was at a funeral. Maybe it was a brush with death you yourself had. Maybe the events of this pandemic's got you thinking. But something has got your attention, and you have been forced to read the writing on the wall. You ever heard that, by the way? The writing on the wall. Hey, the writing's on the wall. Handwriting's on the wall. You ever heard that? That comes from Daniel 5. It actually comes from this verse. Look. Immediately, in the midst of all this wild party, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. The, the, the point is, if somebody had told him, king, there's a disembodied hand writing on the wall, he'd be like, you're making stuff up. But the king, the point is it was opposite the lampstand. It wasn't like the lighting was bad. The king stands up. Can't believe what he sees. Writing on the wall. Sees it with his own two eyes. And suddenly this half-drunk king sobers up quick. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Isn't that a great image? Went pale as a ghost. But he can't understand what the words mean. He knows it's obviously a sign. It's a message. And I mean, they're feasting on the brink of death. But he can't just explain it away. He can't fill up on romantic love or cultural achievement or man-made religion. Or, 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 or he can't drink his way out of this. So he, 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 all he can do is shake and cry out. He has a moment. This is actually a moment of great mercy. And look at what he does. Verse 7. Then the king called loudly. Do what? Nobody can read it. Nobody can interpret this vision. Who are we going to call? Who are you going to call? They bring in the enchanters. Who are you going to call? They call the Ghostbusters every time. 
Now, I'm sorry for those of you who haven't been here, but for those of you who've been here for the whole series, is this not incredible? Like, when are they going to learn? They wheel in all the same experts, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, uh, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple. See, because money buys everything, right? That's what Belshazzar thinks. Money buys everything. So just, that's what the... Shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and be third ruler in the kingdom. Why does he offer him the third spot in the kingdom? Because you remember your history. Nabonidus is still the king. Belshazzar's the number two guy in charge. So the best he can offer him is first runner-up. I just, anyway, this is funny. He's he's trying. (laughs) That's all I can do. Then all the king's wise men came in. But, and I know, church, you'll be shocked to hear this. They could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Whatever shall we do? <sighs> Daniel gets passed over. What is Daniel? Have you noticed all through the book, have you noticed this? Every time something happens that is puzzling or frightful, they wheel in all the best of the world's experts, and the world's experts can't get a handle on it. May I suggest to you that we are not so far advanced as we think we are in 2021? Have you noticed? How do you explain the latest crisis? Whether it's political turmoil or terror or a pandemic? In come the enchanters, Chaldeans, soothsayers, and astrologers. They wheel in all the experts. They wheel them into CNN. They wheel them into Fox News. They come in at the PhDs and the policy planners and the director of this organization and the think tank and this, oh, this, this person, he is a technology innovator and this person is a sociologist and they're a psychologist and this person's an enchanter and a soothsayer and a Chaldean. And what's the result? What happens, it seems to me, is this. They cannot read the writing on the wall. Here's why. Because our problems in this world are not ultimately technology problems. And they're not policy problems. We got a sin problem. And thus worldly wisdom is not sufficient to fix or even explain the mess we're in. We need a word from God. Now surely, surely I would hope someone would object you know, maybe, I mean, surely there, there, there's a psychologist here or a sociologist here or a policy planner or some member of a think tank or someone with a PhD. And surely I'll be out in the point. Surely someone will come up to me afterward and be like, Pastor Tom, is it really fair to lump all us science experts in with the enchanters and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans? Is that fair? To which I'll reply, No, you got me. But here's the point I'm making. Uh, I, 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 I'm a, a big fan. I, I'm, not, I'm no uh, 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 Luddite. I'm a big fan of technology and, I, uh, and science when done well. You won't find a bigger fan. Uh, what happens, though, is they tend to get out of their bounds a little bit. Here's what I mean. When science seeks to answer questions of what and how, it is a great gift from God. And when sociologists attempt to answer what and how is a great gift from God. And when policy planners attempt to solve problems of what and how, it's a great gift of God. But when science gets into the why, 
They become enchanters, Chaldeans, and, and sorcerers. What do I mean? Well, when it comes to explaining, here's what a human cell, for example, does, and here's how the cellular, you know, the anatomy of a cell, here's what it does, and here's how it works, science is in its element. When it says, why do humans have cells at all, and what significance does a, does a human have? Why are humans even here? We need a word from God. See, when policy planners in a secular world want to say, now there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as right and wrong, there's no such thing as evil, then they want to stand up and say, we've got to stand up against this evil. I'm throwing a flag. I'm sorry. You can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, pull the rug from out from under a biblical worldview and then stand on a biblical worldview that you just pulled out. That's what I mean. Worldly wisdom, no help. We need a word from God. And of course, science is of great value. And of course, sociology and psychology. But the thing therapists are after, the thing that science is after, you know, what is the significance of a human? Am I worth anything? Do I matter? What happens after we die? For that, we need the word of God. That's all I'm saying. Worldly wisdom is insufficient for that. It didn't help Belshazzar. It won't help us. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Is there any hope? we can't sort this out. What's going on? We're, we're all scared to death. We're feasting on the brink of, 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 of the grave. So I guess we'll just keep feasting. But is there any hope? Yes. There's a shred of hope. The queen mother bursts in. Verse 10. The queen, which the moral of the story is, always listen to your mama. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. The queen mother had the good sense and decorum not to be present for this wild feast. So she had to come in. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Again, it's such a great mom line. Oh, come on, toughen up. <laughs> there is a man. Mm. There is a man. You need to circle that. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now remember, she's doing pagan theology best she can. So don't hold it against her. She's got this polytheistic worldview but she's on to something. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the, I don't know how to describe it, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. We know how to describe it. She, now, she would have never read Isaiah, but you and I know when you talk about light and understanding and wisdom, that's messianic type language. And what she's saying is there's somebody special. There's somebody different, a cut above. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Oh, there is a man. Listen, your worldly wisdom's not going to figure it out, but there is a man in your kingdom. And she begins to describe Daniel as having all these qualities of the Messiah. And I'm here to tell you, you need this word. There is a man. When all the romance hasn't filled you up and you're still out there longing, you're in this fear of death, you're in this existential uncertainty, and you believe that all the significance and all your achievement, all that wealth, it's going to be gone. And so that's a dead end. What's left is man-made religion and there's no hope. So you turn to the policy experts. You've been trying to numb the pain through abusing substances. You look around, you're hopeless. Your friends are hopeless. What do you need to hear? You need to hear there is a man. There's still a man. Now she's pointing to Daniel, but Daniel points us to Jesus, doesn't he? The wisdom, the light, the hope. It's in Jesus. Don't you see? There's still a man. There's a man. You need to circle that. There's a man. And his name is Jesus. And you need him desperately in the whole Old Testament. Don't you see how Daniel pushes us forward to the Messiah? Don't you see how it, 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 it presses us toward the Messiah? Don't you see how in the Old Testament, aren't you seeing that every page of the Old Testament whispers his name, Jesus? 
I heard this week that the Puritans had a great line. The Puritans say the Old Testament is the swaddling clothes into which baby Jesus was laid. So he didn't come out of nowhere. Every page whispers his name and points us to the coming Messiah. Oh, there is a man. Reminds me of that woman at the well when she met Jesus. Come meet a man. There is a man. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. He'll show you the interpretation. So verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. Here, now Daniel's an old man. The king answered and said to Daniel, now I'm sorry, this is just a, this is just a cheap shot. He knows who Daniel is. He knows. I, I don't know why he didn't start with Daniel. I don't know why any of these kings didn't start with Daniel. But Daniel's the guy who's basically saved the kingdom multiple times. This guy, Belshazzar, owes everything to Daniel. And what does he say to him? The king answered and said, oh, you're that Daniel. One of the exiles of Judah. Whom, you'll recall, the king my father brought from Judah. Oh, so you're that little slave. I don't really have a point. That's just low class. Maybe I do have a point. If you are going, if I'm right, and that my job right now, I have many jobs, but main job in preaching and teaching is to prepare God's people for how to live as exiles, aliens and strangers, then there is a point here. You need to go ahead and get used to the fact that if you're going to be an exile and stranger, just get used to the fact that uh, you uh, will not always get the credit you deserve. Sorry. In this life, in this world, you will be passed over and you will be looked over and you won't get the credit you deserve. So you better lay up your treasures and put all your hope, not in this earth, but in the coming kingdom. Because exiles and strangers will just get passed over. And here's Daniel just getting, I mean, how does Daniel get slept on when he's like the guy that's done it over and over? I don't, I move on. Verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Oh, I've heard. Oh, come on. You know Daniel. Now the, you know Daniel. Now the wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, he makes in the same deal he made the other enchanters. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered and said before the king you can keep your money (laughs) let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another I don't want to be third in command of this sinking ship but all right since you got me out here yeah I was I was I was in I was in bed by six I'd had dinner you woke me up you know nevertheless I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Uh, Two reasons he refused, uh, by the way. Remember, spiritual gifts cannot be bought and the servant of God cannot be bought off. So the gifts are refused. And Daniel says, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Okay. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar. Now this, you really need last week's message to understand this. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So if he had any glory, if he had any authority, if he had any majesty, it's not because he was such a big shot. No, the strut stops 
here. You, it was given by God, which means leadership is stewardship. It's temporary. Somebody's going to come after you. And God will hold you accountable. So lead with humility, not with arrogance. Leadership is stewardship. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingship. Verse 19, and because of the greatness he gave him, yes, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. So you're looking up at Nebuchadnezzar like the, the halicon days of, of Babylon. You're looking back like, that was the glory days. That's when we were the best. Dude, God gave Nebuchadnezzar that. You're, you're taking all this pride. Whom he killed, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, look at what pride does. And his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne. He didn't give it up. He was brought down. Notice, um, not just English majors, everybody. Notice in these next verses, it's all passive voice. It's not Nebuchadnezzar did this, Nebuchadnezzar did that. He's so big and powerful and mighty. No, 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 no. This was done unto him. God is in control. Look, he was brought down. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. He didn't leave the children of mankind. He was driven. His mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He didn't go out and eat the grass. He was fed grass like an ox. You see? His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Which means Daniel's been preaching basically the same sermon for 60 years. And you, Belshazzar. And here I imagine old Daniel points a bony finger at Belshazzar. You have not humbled your heart. Here's the worst part, y'all. Though you knew all this. To every one of us who've grown up in the church, this is a convicting word. You can't plead ignorance. You knew all this. Hegel once said that the only thing we learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. You didn't humble your heart, Belshazzar. Why is this such an important point? Because we too often falsely assume that having enough data will make change. It will bring about change. That's why all these policymakers, it always comes back to education. If we educate the children in this, or if we educate the adults, if we can just educate the population, if people had more data, if they had more information, oh, please, please. I'm all for the truth. I hope so, right? I better be. But the truth by itself doesn't change hearts. Oh, if we can just get the information out there that seat belts save lives, then everyone will wear a seatbelt. Come on. Everybody in here knows texting and driving is foolish and could kill you or somebody else. And yet, ding, right? We all have the education, but we all do it. Some of you, I don't, you're judging me. I don't know. Some, I, I've done it. <laughs> Why? Why? Because I have all the information, but I need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Look, you can have the truth. But the Spirit has to anoint the truth. It's not just the truth that can change a heart. Only God can change a heart. And you knew all this. But instead, you committed blasphemy. If you know all this, and you continue in a path of sin, look, it's blasphemy. Look at where it leads you. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels all... And the, think about this, Belshazzar, the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you, 
come on, these idols, they don't see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. I, I, I can't imagine a more convicting sermon on the planet than what Daniel preached to Belshazzar. Maybe when Nathan confronted King David, but either, that'd be like close. But, but here, like, he's laying it out perfectly. He's saying, you committed the ultimate blasphemy. You had the vessels that belonged to the holy God Yahweh, okay? And you held that goblet, and you just thought it was all fun and games. You just had a blast. You, in fact, you used his stuff to toast your idols. Oh, man. And here's the thing. You thought you were holding Yahweh in your hand, when in fact, Yahweh was holding you he right now holds your breath and if he tightens that grip you stop breathing the god in whose hand is your breath you knew it you knew better and you didn't honor him um a word about blasphemy blasphemy is any speech or action which takes anything designed for the worship of god and misuses it to the praise of false gods Okay, got it? A speech or action which is, takes anything designed for the worship of God and misuses it for the praise of false gods. And that's why blasphemy is so scary when you think about, um, uh, uh, you say, well, we don't have like vessels devoted to Yahweh today that can be misused. Excuse me? Yeah, we don't have like, I mean, it's not like, it's not like God dwells in a temple. It's not like we can blaspheme the temple. Excuse me? First Corinthians chapter 6, your body Know you not? Your body is a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit, which means every time we use our, the members of our body for unrighteousness, it's not just sin, it's blasphemy against a holy God. If you tell a lie, you did it with the very air God gave you that was devoted to his holiness. If you lust, you did it with the very appetites God created for righteousness, you used them for unrighteousness. If you envy, you envied with the very brain God gave you. You took the holy things of God and offered them as profanity. Blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. I have too. Now, is there any hope? Can blasphemy be forgiven? Yes, all sins can be forgiven except one. Stay with me and I'll unlock what for some of you is a question. If I say something bad against you, only you can forgive me. You, your neighbor can't forgive me. I didn't, I didn't say anything bad against him. If I say something bad against God, if, that's blasphemy. See the difference? So if, I, if I'm misusing the holy things of God, I'm blaspheming God. Only God can forgive me. And he can. He can forgive me for every blasphemy. How? He sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, he convicts me of sin, he shows me grace, and he leads me back to the Father, right? He draws me to the Father. There's only one way to God the Father, that's through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter comes, he convicts me, he brings me back. So the Holy Spirit is sent to go out and to fetch these wayward sinners, these blasphemers, right? And to bring them back. Which is why Jesus says there's only one unforgivable sin. There's only one unpardonable sin. Do you know what it is? It's when the Holy Spirit comes to save you the blas he calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It makes total sense. Because he's your only way of salvation. If you cut that off, no other forgiveness is possible. No other forgiveness can be offered. It's like sawing off the very branch you're sitting on. Does that make sense? So every blasphemy can be forgiven. Except rejecting his offer of salvation. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the writing on the wall comes. Let's wrap this up. And the judgment is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Look at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Daniel says, this is the writing. Mene, mene, tekel, 
parson, numbered, numbered, way divided. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. <laughs> At this point, Daniel's already rejected the gifts. I only imagine that Belshazzar's, you know, I don't know what the look on his face this horrifying prophecy, and Daniel receives it, clothed with purple, chain of gold put around his neck, and, and a pop proclamation was made about him. He should be third ruler in the kingdom, to which Daniel's rolling his eyes like, oh, please. And how long did he get to rule as third ruler in the kingdom? For a couple hours. Verse 30. <laughs> that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. October 12, 538 B.C. Remember how I told you they were behind those double walls and the Euphrates River flowed into the city? This ancient historian said that Cyrus, who was a brilliant general and engineer himself, had this idea years before and tried it out on Babylon. Uh, that whole week, they had been advancing the army, but they'd been doing it with one task. They, they'd been diverting the Euphrates River. And while Belshazzar's having his drunken feast and praising his gods, uh, that river that he was depending on to save him was being diverted, and it was slowly getting lower and lower and lower. So that by the night of that terrible feast... The uh, Cyrus and his army was able to walk in just knee-deep water, walk right in under the walls, and take the city with scarcely a fight. Let me say that again. While, while, while he's feasting on the brink of the grave, the enemy is sneaking in, and he's coming for you and your family. The whole time. That's what's in the background of Daniel 5. The whole time you're reading about this thing, what you don't realize is the whole time the water level's getting lower and lower. Maybe Belshazzar thought, oh, I know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar got like 12 months. God gave him like a grace period to get right. Maybe he'll do that with me. Not realizing, no, that very night. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, what's the application? This is heavy stuff. Now, Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response and reflection. And I believe there are two applications here, but it kind of depends on where you are. Okay? And they're sort of the opposite sides of the metaphor. And they both have to do with this finger of God image, right? The writing on the wall. If you are here this morning and, and you are at the feast of the wicked, it's, it's, it, and, it, and I hope you don't hear any judgment in my voice. I hope you hear grace. Because if you're at the feast of the wicked, then the writing on the wall is so clear. Repent, turn, be saved today. Come to true safety. The fatal flaw in Ernest Becker's work is he didn't count on God. He said the romantic solution won't solve it ultimately, and I agree with him. And he said the, 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 the creative solution won't solve it, and I agree with him. And he said mind-numbing uh, substance abuse won't solve it, and I agree with him. But then he says religion won't solve with it. It won't solve it. And that's where I say, oh, you're right. Man-made religion won't. But I want to say, there is a man. This is not man-made religion. This is the gospel. That God is real. And that means that eternity is real. And that means you can have a home in heaven. And that means that when you lay my body in the grave, it's not the end. This is the great hope. Every Sunday is like a little mini Easter. That because we know and follow the man, they laid his body in the grave and he burst forth a bodily physical resurrection a foretaste of what's coming 
That's literally that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That glory, I'm going to share in that. So when you lay my body in the grave, my my spirit goes to be with the Lord. But there is coming a day. There's going to come a trumpet blast and the sky will be ripped open and Christ Jesus will return. And the dead in Christ shall rise. I'm going to come up out of that grave. Or if I'm burned, the ashes will come together. Or if I'm blown up at sea, at the bottom of the sea, here I'll come. He'll find me restore that body and glorify it suitable for an eternity on the new heaven new earth where life eternal eternal life starts now for the believer why would you miss that opportunity if you're not yet a christian i'm pleading with you if you hear this on the live stream one day or if you are here now why would you not receive him the writings on the wall and that's the that's the second application for those of you who are believers that's the first the writing's on the wall be saved if you're not okay but if you are saved then the metaphor works in reverse Uh, I hope this is not a stretch the finger of God the finger of God is used three times that I can find in the Bible the first is in the Exodus Uh, basically um, Pharaoh's magicians are like we can't do I think one of the plagues they couldn't replicate I think it was gnats or flies one of them and they say you know we can't do this this was none other than the finger of God did this in other words only god can do this then in daniel 5 writing on the wall and then one other place the only place in the new testament curiously it's in luke 11 and it's when jesus has done an exorcism and has cast out the demons and the pharisees don't know what to do with this and so they throw out this insane theory they go um uh jesus you were able to cast out demons by the power of demons yes you summoned the occult and that's how you were able to cast out demons and everybody laughs. That's ridiculous. And Jesus points out how foolish that is. Jesus is like, you remember this. He's like, a house divided against itself can't stand. So that's nonsense. All right? I'm paraphrasing. But he's like, that's dumb. Okay. He says, on the other hand, you've got one other conclusion. On the other hand, if I was able to cast out these demons by the finger of God, if I did it by the finger of God, then you've got to admit, however much you don't want to, that the kingdom is here and there's a new strong man in town and he's plundering satan's house and he's he's breaking in in a way it's like yes that's it if if you're not invited to the banqueting table of the wicked you're not at belshazzar's feast you're a child of god but you're looking around and your heart breaks because you see all these people but you realize don't give up don't lose hope jesus said by the finger of god this is happening the inbreaking of the kingdom he's coming in that's why we're praying, Lord, let your kingdom come in greater and greater measure. It's here. He's breaking in. You see it in hope. You see it when God's people stand up. You see it when God's people pray. It's the church. The inbreaking is here. Don't give up. It's happening. Tonight could be the night. Like that trumpet could sound. The sky could rip open. But until it does, don't you see the inbreaking is here? So what about your lost friends? What about your, your, your family members? They're at Satan's table. What is the hope? The hope is the writing on the wall. Who's the writing on the wall? You are Christian. So my takeaway from Daniel 5 is this. If you are a Christian, you are God's writing on the wall this week. You ready? Be legible. Be legible. Live your life in such a way this week that lost people can see your life as writing on the wall. 
hey, what's different about you? How did you react that way? What's going on? I I see God in your life. God's been good to you. You're always talking about his goodness. Tell me about his goodness. What are you doing? You're being legible. You're the writing on the wall. Finger of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would grant to those that don't know you salvation today. Save them. Draw them. Maybe they're listening to this on a video one day. Maybe this is, maybe they're watching this years from now. Oh God, save the lost. And for the believers, God, make us legible this week. Make us the writing on the wall. For a world that desperately needs to hear good news, let us be legible. Let us be clear. Don't let us be blurred and, 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 and distracted. Let us be so crystal clear and filled with your love that there'll be no mistaking whose we are. The writing will be clear on the wall for them, for the lost, for the nations. God, grant that to us. We pray in Jesus' name.